0: Look at economics from the standpoint of the ability to increase the potential relative population density, the number of people that you can potentially support in a given square kilometer. And that's what economics really is about. It's about increasing the power of labor, the power of an individual to do productive work. The way you increase that is through machine tools, through technologies, and you increase it through fundamental breakthroughs in energy. You want to go to more intense, higher qualities of fire, If you think about it from that perspective, if we go from wood to coal to oil to fission, which is where we should be, we should be in a fission economy right now, which would be many times more productive than our present economy is. And then diffusion, that's where we should be headed, because at every leap, you fundamentally qualitatively change the power that mankind has over the universe.
1: Welcome to the political economy project with the goal of creating universal prosperity for today and future generations. My name is Evan Papp and I'm the executive producer of Empathy Media Lab, which publishes content on labor, political economy, art and culture. And we're a proud member of the labor radio podcast network. Today, I'm speaking with Daniel Burke, who ran for US Senate in New Jersey and is with the Schiller Institute. We will be discussing political economy and the existential issues we currently face. Daniel, thanks so much for your time.
0: Thank you so much for having me on. I'm really looking forward to this conversation.
1: So, could we begin by just learning more about you and how you got interested in the topics we're we're about to explore?
0: Absolutely. So, I'm in my mid 30s, and when I was coming out of college, I I well, first of all, I was a junior in, in college when the financial crash took place, and then I, I went to become a public school teacher in New Orleans, and I witnessed poverty, I got out of my bubble and I witnessed poverty in the United States for the first time. And I did that for two years. And I remember very commonly people would say, other teachers would say, well, if your administration isn't, you know, doing what they need to do, then just close your door. Meaning just work on the culture in your classroom. I was a first grade teacher and, and that's all you need to do and everything's gonna be okay. And I realized that that was exactly the kind of, that kind of thinking is exactly the kind of problem that we have because my students are suffering from extreme poverty. And the idea that we're gonna fix this by ignoring the problems around us or somehow by avoiding that reality is a non-starter. So I started to recognize that although prior I had thought, well, politics is hopefully hopelessly corrupt and therefore who would have anything to do with it? I realized actually we do need to do something about this. We need a fundamental political shift so that the life of, of a, of a child is valued, the mind of a child is valued. And uh, I started trying to try to figure out why the financial system crashed. Why is it that people were so outrageously poor? in the United States, it made no sense to me. And the only person I found who gave me a coherent understanding of that and a passionate mission to change the nature of the world system which within which that situation exists was Lyndon LaRouche. And so I started to read Lyndon LaRouche, I started to watch him on on his videos and, and try to understand what he was talking about. Lyndon LaRouche, the late American economist, he died three years ago, February, 2019. And his movement is continued by his, his wife, Helga zepp who is who was the leader of the Schiller Institute and founded it 40 years ago. And I was trying to figure out, you know, why did this system come down and why hasn't anything been done? You know, why was Obama not impeached for the war in Libya? What the hell? Ha- why, was, why was Cheney not thrown out for, and Bush for, for the crimes that they committed? And, when I when I found that this movement, I said this is it for me because the whole commitment of the LaRouche movement is the total physical economic development of the globe, and uh, to to end a system of financial oligarchism that has been imposed on humanity for so many so many centuries. Anyway, so that's how I came to be where I am.
1: And you have a number of videos as well that anyone can find online and you, you do weekly live chats and things like that. So we'll, I'll put that all in the show notes. So when you ran for New Jersey Senate, what were some of your main goals the, on your platform? So I was
0: running against Cory Booker for U.S. Senate and I, my goal, I'll tell you a big the, the sort of the, the key thing that I was really trying to get across during that campaign is I was trying to communicate to a broad audience of youth and also of Trump supporters. I was definitely talking to a lot of them that we need a cooperative relationship between the United States, Russia, China, also India, which is those four nations comprised what LaRouche referred to as a four power strategy. His view was that if you could get those nations to collaborate on economic development, as in the physical economic development of the belt and road initiative then you would also be able to take the the steps necessary to put the enormous financial bubble through bankruptcy the transatlantic financial system in its entirety is bankrupt it's got you know by their own they they the bank for international settlements claims that there's 610 trillion dollars of derivatives liabilities and there could be easily twice that yeah
1: i've seen quadrillion once you start getting the derivatives that you know we the world gdp is i think around 70 trillion or something like that annually and there could be up to quadrillion (laughs) dollars of debt that can never be paid and is yet going to still be serviced and taking productive aspects of the economy away tax to these private financiers
0: exactly it's it's just sucking out Preventing any credit from going into the real economy, into infrastructure, into, you know, actually like industry and increasing the productive powers of the United States. And instead we're in this vortex going into, you know, a Weimar hyperinflation, which is what LaRouche was forecasting and that forecast stands today. Anyway, so what I went as I did, like I went to the only Trump rally that was ever held in New Jersey and I had a huge banner that said Trump, Xi, Putin, peace summit now. And we did that about a week after the Soleimani assassination, which was a horrendous crime and idiotic and was extremely dangerous, you know, driven by the same kind of geopolitical presumptions of deterrence that put us into, you know, this zero-sum game, this, this expectation that it's impossible for the United States to cooperate with Russia and China, that our interests are fundamentally you know, always going to be opposed to one another. it's a fraud. it's a total fraud there's a there's a clear, beautiful future ahead of us if we work with these nations together and I was trying to advance that conception to the people that I met uh, with some success some some success and, but in general you know the the fight is continuing right now, right everything that we were warning about at that time has become apparent to a much, much broader group of people. I said at the time that we're on the brink of World War III, which, of course, LaRouche had been forecasting that that's where we were going since 2012 when Gaddafi was assassinated, that that was the trajectory that we are on. I was warning that that's where we're going to go unless we turn towards a cooperative policy. And uh, and now here we are. You know, I think Antonov, the the, the Russian ambassador to the United States, just warned that we are that the united states is being drawn in increasingly to an overt active role in ukraine that means overt war not proxy war i mean it's been going on but the point is that it's a it's a process that develops and develops and develops and we're now reaching a a very very dangerous point in that regard
1: yeah which is It, I mean, it, it's it's hard to fathom that we are on this precipice of thermonuclear holocaust. Just the scale of of the destruction. So, one part of your campaign, just to stay on this this the campaign, was the Artemis program. Could oh, yeah. you Talk about why the development of space is so important.
0: Well, that's like the high point from the United States. That's like the only point of excitement about something positive that the us government has been doing is nasa the, the james webb telescope for example that was just developed the artemis program is the mission announced under trump that would take humanity back to the moon that would land americans on the moon again and the original plan was to get that done by i think 2024 that has been pushed back, but it is still on the agenda that we are going to take Americans back to the moon. And this, this represents really a, a huge part of LaRouche's um, political life and his commitment in his, in his life, which is to understand that humanity is a galactic species. We're not, we're not chained to the earth. We have every ability to continue to explore, to go out into the unknown. I mean, there are two trillion galaxies out there, two trillion galaxies. And by making a mission to discover things on that level, it organizes what LaRouche called a science driver for the economy. Uh, the whole fundamental breakthrough, the discoveries in physical economics that LaRouche made in the late 1940s and early 1950s, are about the relationship between a scientific discovery and technological breakthroughs associated with it, and the overall economy. How do you how do you measure that? How do you understand that that relationship? He demonstrated that all value comes from advances in fundamental science and technology, all in, all capability to move the human species forward, because as long, as soon as you stop progressing in science and technology, then your economy is just winding down. Entropy. You're just, <laughs> exactly. In. Yeah. yeah. You, you're, you're consigning yourself to something that is not human and, and which is, you know, entropy. It's not, it's not a rule of the universe. It's not true. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's perhaps a law that has been, you know, passed by, by the British Parliament or something like that. That's what LaRouche might say, but it's not true. And, and therefore, we need to constantly advance mankind forward, and that this would require, especially breakthroughs in fusion energy, which, for example, I mean, we've been fighting for that since the late 1960s. But if you have fusion rockets, you can go to Mars in a matter of, weeks
1: i i've even seen if you can do a 1g constant acceleration halfway there which is a 1g earth gravity so you'd create the the magnetic sphere that we're used to so our bodies won't just be piles of jello when it arrives and and then a 1g deceleration the the rest of the half i've, I've seen some equations saying we could be there in three
0: four days absolutely which is just mind-boggling too and that would, that changes the whole geometry of human economic activity. And it, it actually fundamentally changes space-time and our, you know, our, the, the power of man to, to shape it and to, to use, to advance humankind forward with an increasing capability to hold, to support an increasing number of people per square kilometer. And an increasing standard of living. And that's the whole thing is that LaRouche says, throw out monetarism, throw out money, forget about money. Just forget about it. It's not that's not the issue. And instead, look at economics from the standpoint of the ability to increase the potential relative population density, the the number of people that you can potentially support in a given square kilometer. And then you're dealing with thermodynamics. And that's what economics really is about. It's actually about increasing the power of labor, the power of an individual to do, to do productive work. The way you increase that is through machine tools, you increase it through, in other words, technologies, and you increase it, for example, through fundamental breakthroughs in energy. You wanna go to more intense, more higher qualities of fire If you think about it from that perspective, if we go from wood to coal, to oil, to fission, which is where we should be, we should be in a fission economy right now, which would be many times more productive than our present economy is. And then diffusion, that's where we should be headed because at every leap, you fundamentally qualitatively change the the power that mankind has over the universe, and it allows you to do more but it allows you to do things you never could have done before like what you're describing with the mars 1g acceleration. Yeah. So that's you know that's the that's the fundamental reason that we need to fight for the space program in the United States and for fusion energy. And then just to say further that that would it also provides the basis for a common mission of mankind. You know, Russia and China have a lunar base plan for 2035. And the United States should be cooperating with them instead of saying we refuse to. We should be, you know, that we should use that as a way to get nations collaborating.
1: And let's just remember that Obama canceled the, the NASA program of getting astronauts to space in 2011, 2012. We were only able to get to the space station because Russia was taxing us up because we decided to cut off that ability to do it ourselves. And of course, it got privatized and commercialized. And I, I do think there's a role for commercial space. I think there it's great to have commercial development technology in that, but to have government backing is still essential. And now Russia's pulled out of the space station, which was one of the great international cooperation that, that has ever been designed in the history of this planet. And we may not even have the ability to keep it open now that Russia is, is pulled out. China's already building their low orbit space station. We're gonna lose, you know, this capacity. And and each time we we have generations going out with the without the experience of these productive jobs, they we, we lose that. And it's very hard to get it back once it's gone. So we we need to continue pushing forward with a lot of this. And just one one other point too is like when you think about the productive powers of labor when you look at the apollo program i mean if if you're just a money's accountant's guy into one return on investment but what's coming back is that a higher productive power of labor when you actually have internet and you have satellites and all of these other things that that come back so that so every dollar going to the space program yeah it it can be 13 dollars in return but it's a different dollar that comes back
0: I totally agree with you. And that's the whole, that's the whole issue that LaRouche is investigating and why he uses the work of Bernhard Riemann, the uh, the mathematician to, he used that to, to understand how you're going to map out this transformation of, of the, of the universe and of the powers of the human, of the human species. And he demonstrated that you're, you really have to look into the fundamental changes in space time and in you know in you know actually i'm kind of losing my 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 focus here so let me go back i'll make a different point of emphasis the the changes that are brought about by the apollo mission you can see how it actually transforms the cultural capability of the population that you have people who are optimistic who look to the stars and of course there's a I mean widely cited report about a survey given to Chinese students and to American children and these Chinese kids want to become astronauts and the American children want to become YouTubers and I've seen right?
1: influencers yeah. yeah
0: influencers and that whole you know that that's people should be thinking about that the the United States cultural conditions are abysmal and if you look at the state of our cities, I mean, everything that I encountered in New Orleans is worse now. So if you're going to change this, you're dealing, the thing that we're fundamentally dealing with is cynicism, pessimism about the nature of man. And, you know, the space, the space mission is a wonderful way of of lifting people out of that. It's not the only thing you need to do, but it's certainly a wonderful way to do it.
1: Yeah. And and having, having vision of where we want to go. I, I feel like I've, yeah (laughs) but my entire life there hasn't been that vision of you know something that we're all working towards and it's like okay we're gonna do a full maglev build throughout the united states and we're gonna have limitless supply of nuclear energy that can then power our industries and getting everyone involved with that vision i i've never seen it and of course as fdr In his inaugural address is, you you know, he's citing a a biblical passage, but, you know, without vision, the people perish. And we're just, you know, the the pessimism and cynicism really grows in this country, while other countries like China, because they have China 2025 and now they have 2035 on the moon base. People can see the future and can start organizing the present because of it.
0: Absolutely.
1: And this other concept that you articulate well is this concept of the noosphere and this idea that we, we, and this idea of Zeus and Prometheus and like, what is humans? What, what does it mean to be human? And what, what does it mean to, to actually organize our economy so that the human mind is able to achieve its highest potentialities in discovering new principles that can, Help lead us out of scarcity, <laughs> and I, I really love a lot of the work that you've been articulating on that. I, if, if you have anything that you may want to yeah,
0: add to that, I'd love to. I so you're referring to the conception that has, was developed by Vladimir Vernadsky, the Ukrainian-Russian biogeochemist, and he's a wonderful person to focus on, including in the midst of this absolute disaster that's happening in Ukraine because of NATO. You know, he he put forward the idea that we are in what he called the psychozoic era because human thought has become the dominant role on the planet has begun playing the dominant role on the planet and everything that you look at is organized by human thought and as against the satanic green fascist conception about the nature of man and you know and his environment it is not the case that human economic activity has a characteristic of depleting limited resources unless as we discussed earlier we decide to lock ourselves into entropy which is lunatic in fact the whole history of the human species and the history of the effect of human thought and the, the sort of the realm the phase space of, of human thought which he called the noosphere, around uh, on, the effect of that on the biosphere that is the the, the realm of living matter and uh, and also on the abiotic the non-living is that we can increase the potential and, the product and the, the, really the productivity of those, of those spheres. You know, you look at agriculture. It's a very straightforward, right? It's amazing that, that, that such a dark age conception as the, the thought that man is opposed to nature has, has become so dominant because it's so straightforward that it's not true. There is an action of the human mind to organize and advance the capabilities of the biosphere and as a result, we're able to support nearly 8 billion people on this planet. You know, I mean, it's it's straightforward that that's what we're doing. So LaRouche's fight has been against the action of the Club of Rome, the, the British monarchy, the Bush family, and associated people, the Kissinger, who act on the principle of Malthusianism and say, because human population is necessarily detrimental to the to you know to the earth therefore we have to reduce the human population and LaRouche said these people are this is the enemy and if we can shut them down then a renaissance will flower and an age of reason is possible because all nations that are reasonable when they see a change in this situation Will commit themselves to the full sovereign development of their own economies and the general welfare of their own populations. Once you get this factor of financial oligarchism out of the way and the associated ideologies that they use to justify their actions, then there's going to be an ability for civilizations to, you know, to cooperate and to develop in a way that has never, not been possible before.
1: So, just to go back a little bit on this idea of the noosphere, it's it's written over hundred years ago, I think, in the early 1900s, late 1800s, and in a way, it's like how do you bloom the desert, and you have to change, and and that's how the mind is actually changing the biosphere as well. And I I want to focus on this this idea of green fascism because there are people in the audience who are environmentalists who are concerned about the planet and may not be aware of the Club of Rome which was founded in the early 19 well maybe late 1960s but they had a conference in the early 1970s that show that that argued that we have a population crisis and that Kissinger also came out with a national security memorandum about how the population is is bad for our foreign policy and we need to deal with it and we've seen, the, and Thomas Malthus was also fighting for the British East India Company to be able to argue that the the reason why there, there's so much poverty in India under the British East India rule is because there there's too many people. It's not because of the extraction of resources of this rapacious oligarchical structure of the British East India Company. But when people hear green fascism, they may reflexively not be able to understand what you mean and to, to get them to maybe get on your team. How, how do you respond to that?
0: Well, first of all, welcome to the team. And <laughs> you're going to love it. It's much better than the other team. <laughs> I mean, first of all, just look at what's going on in the world, because a new paradigm is developing. And the things that LaRouche fought for are in increasingly becoming more powerful. Well, uh, in Africa, right now, there is the effect of Blinken moving in there to try to force the Africans to go along with sanctions on Russia that are hurting Africans, all, all nations across Africa. And so what's the response? Well, in public, the South African representative, you know, chose to basically say to him, you're not going to bully us. We're not going to do that. The Guardian newspaper came out with an with a, a an exposé about a week ago in which they said that we have received a leaked report from the African Union that African nations going to the COP27 conference COP conferences of course are the big international climate conferences that were have been organized primarily by the British monarchy going back and people like Sir Michael Bloomberg And uh, Mark Carney, the former head of the Bank of England, has played a huge role in this in the policies advanced there. So basically, the African Union has gotten together and said, we're going to develop our fossil fuels if we want to. And we're not going to let some unilateral, supranational, you know, body of, of, you know, what are they, financial oligarchs tell us what we're going to do. And these guys that are running the COP27 are kind of freaked out by that. So that even Chatham House, the famous you know British imperial organ, came out and said that it's really a problem that Egypt is hosting the COP27 conference because the Egyptians are not going along with the idea that in order to stop warming, African nations are not allowed to develop, to have the development that they require. And if you look at, I had a, I had a conflict with a guy named Nico House, who's a, He's a he's a RT reporter a couple of weeks ago where he said, you know, the Kenyans and the African environmentalists are bravely standing up against, you know, rapacious oil companies and so forth. Well, so if you look into who are the environmentalists who are advancing a campaign to prevent the development of fossil fuels in Kenya, I went to the list of environmentalist organizations. And like the first one that I clicked was financed by the U.S. State Department. Give me a break. The whole thing is straightforward it's colonialism by a different means, it's sanctions on everything. And the the, the, the claims about CO2 are not other than a justification for, for sanctioning the ability of nations to have energy. And you need, which is the fundamental requirement to industrialize an economy and to move forward. So let me say that first, that, that sort of scenario. And I believe, that it, <clears throat> people who are looking at this, I used to, you know, I was I was sure when I was about 21 that I was going to move to Portland and live in a yurt and practice permaculture, you know, you know, regenerative agriculture. Okay. So I was sure about that. So I used to be an environmentalist too. So don't worry about it. I want you to consider whether it is possible to have the total economic development of Africa. Think of what they have in China. Forget about the U.S. You don't want them to have what we have here because it's terrible. But think about what they have in China with high speed trains and nuclear power plants. And they have, you know, just a flowering capability of tremendous improvement of lives. 800 million people lifted out of poverty. There are before the pandemic, there were almost a billion people who don't have electricity. In Uganda, the the only 40 percent of the population has access to electricity. And that's access to electricity is defined as four hours of electricity per day. So forget it. You know, the situation is that there is a genocide that is happening right now. That's not something that's like going to happen. It's not someone, you know, you can't, don't listen to the conspiracy theorists or the people, you know, don't take someone who says, who who, who opposes climate change for, compl- for I mean, whatever, who, who, who claims to be, say, the climate change is a hoax, but they have a totally chauvinistic view of the world and are totally focused on the U.S. Forget about them. They don't represent the truth. It's not about simply saying that CO2 is not, the, is not the problem. It's about a mission for humanity to make sure that this genocide that is happening in the world to the potent poorest people are, is stopped. 45 million children in the world in 2021 are suffering from wasting. They have, well, from wasting, they have, uh, which is the most advanced form of malnutrition, it means that they have a 12 times greater likelihood of dying. And and those problems are caused by man-made famine, man-made war, man-made economic destruction, and they're not caused by you know the things that Prince Charles wants people to worry about. So so that's the main thing that I would say. And I'll give a lot of another point since you allow me to go on a little bit, which is that uh, look at the world land bridge. Okay, you're talking about the requirement of a vision. I am really helpful because I've been able to reach a greater and greater margin of young people for whom the world land bridge is like the most exciting thing they've ever thought of and they just have adopted it as something that they really love. The key connection between North and South America is at the Darien Gap, which is, you know, I think it's well anyway it's Colombia. Yeah, Colombia
1: Panama. Exactly. Think, yeah. And
0: at the crucial point where there needs to be a rail link, the World Wildlife Fund, which was founded by Prince Philip and uh, and Prince Bernard of the of the Netherlands, who was a card-carrying Nazi has a conservation part and they say it cannot possibly be allowed that there be economic development here because it is so important to protect mother nature and so when you see that that's what this is that this the the gaia worship is nazism it is it is eugenicism it is a, a colonialism it's every possible effort from the standpoint of Zeus, as we were, as you know, you referenced earlier, to prevent the development of the third world, so-called, or the development of, you know, of peoples across the world.
1: Uh, so I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Zambia in 2004 to 2007, and I, I feel very fortunate that Kennedy got this started. And I think if more Americans were able to travel abroad and come back, we would have a different view of ourselves and A different view of what our mission is i wasn't doing development there (laughs) in a lot of ways i was trying to help the communities help but what what did i know and i saw you know community i lived in a community with no electricity no running water i experienced that using a pit latrine using cooking with firewood open fire and everyone there wanted electricity everyone wanted modernity and everybody wanted the simple things that i have taken for granted being an american born into this country with all of the assets and capital that you inherit just by being born here and of course being in upper middle class even even much more so and i come back and (laughs) go to grad school and start having these classes on international development with professors and I I said, well, can't we just all agree that these material necessities are our baseline, and we can then start talking about other things after that? And the general response was like, well, that's that's imperial. That you're you're imposing colonizer. Your, 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 <laughs> yeah, you're you're. They, it needs to be. They need to have their own agency, and everything needs to be going through this capability approach of amartya sin and that how you know like we can't have these universal agreements on material well-being because each individual has to have, figure out what their individual preference is and i'm yeah. like but they all told me they want electricity <laughs> and a washing machine so what what it, and food and a job and like what is this crap like they don't yeah. want to be in a mud hut and that's roof if they can get the metal roof and they see and they see the car coming into the village every every other week you know so I come back and I'm a little militant. Good. <laughs> I, I'm still, I still am frustrated with this idea that cook stoves for Africa, because if they develop, you know, they're going to be using too much resources. Like that is one of the, the sickest ideas that I hear around Washington, D.C., where I'm based. And yeah. I, I try to point out about just how evil that view is. And yet it's very pervasive. <laughs> unfortunately.
0: Yeah, well, remember, of course, that's what Obama said. And in South Africa, he gave a speech in Johannesburg. And he said that unless unless we find some new way of producing energy, then if all Africans have a big house and air conditioning and a big car, well, the planet's going to boil over. Right. And I mean, it says it right there. Not only does he make this claim that, gee, if Africans have good lives, then everything's going to collapse, which is overtly Malthusian. But he also admits the issue, which is, he says, unless we have a new form of energy. And then he is, as president, was responsible for shutting down necessary funding to things like like the space program and associated po- policies like fusion energy. So this is this is where we are right now, is that the dominant culture has been Malthusian and, and has allowed people, I think po- partly because people, it's just what you said, I mean, if people go abroad and actually go to places, or go to places in the United States where, where these problems exist, then they would not have such fantasies, such bizarro fantasies. But of course, what's happened is that, you know, in the US, U.S. culture, people have been, they've been trained to think inside a certain box. They've been trained to think that, to 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 live a life that is organized around popular culture, which is just a, an opiate, so to speak. It's, a, I mean... People that don't have, don't have an opportunity to think about the idea that there's a purpose in their lives, and if you go to a elite university in the United States, you're trained uh, with the most advanced sophists that you can possibly find to believe that the, to to understand why it is that there's no purpose in human in life. You know and they they act like that's some big discovery
1: <laughs> Like <laughs> instead of it's always going to lead to nihilism while innately in in consciousness is a, a need for reason a need for purpose
0: absolutely they, they they want they they train people to become proselytizers for nihilism and then and then people that that's what culture is nowadays that's what it is when you turn on the television that's what it is when you you know, when you open up your your phone, and you look at the internet, it's all, it's all a matter of that kind of social engineering. But on the other side, I have to tell you, I mean, I'm seeing something different from the 20 year olds, I'm talking to people who are, for you know, some of them, for example, are people who grew up in Asia, and then moved to the move to the United States or Canada. And they have a completely different perspective. And generally, there is a growing political cap- capability in the United States, I believe, which is represented by people listed on the Ukrainian blacklist, for example, who are 30 out of 72 of the people that were on the, are on that list were speakers at Schiller Institute conferences or otherwise are actually overtly associated with the Schiller Institute, with the LaRouche movement, like Hel- Helga Zepp-LaRouche, the, the leader of the movement, and Diane Sayre, the wonderful candidate for U.S. Senate in New York, challenging Chuck Schumer. She's on the ballot. I really hope that you can invite her for an interview at some point. But there, that represents a growing capability, I think. And I'm talking to people, I think there's a big youth component of it. Uh, people who can see that what's going on with in China, in particular, what's going on in China, and what's going on in the rest of the world, they notice what's, what's going on in response to, to, to the kind of thing that Blinken is doing in Africa. They notice what The truth is behind the NATO eastward expansion and the provocations that led to the the Russian special military operation. People understand that not a large majority of people, by no means a small minority, but they understand it in an increasingly effective way. And I'm convinced that that will continue to develop if we keep fighting like mad.
1: To China's credit, as you mentioned, they've lifted over 600 million people out of poverty in the last 20 years or 700 million. They've built high speed rail over 30,000 kilometers in the last 15 to tw- 15 years, I think 20, 20 years max. And they have another 20,000 plus kilometers in the pipeline. They just signed a 450 billion dollar intent to build over 150 nuclear reactors. And I I think we could have a discussion on China. I I am not 100% supportive of any country, including China or Russia or the United States. That being said, I would love to see Congress, all of Congress, go to China, Mm -hmm. travel their high-speed rails, go to their er new airports that are all brand new, and take some lessons back, you know, and and just realize that our decrepit infrastructure and that we have the American Society of Civil Engineers puts out a report card that says we need 4.5 trillion just to get our infrastructure to working level, not to get to the horizon level, horizon technology level. And yet, since COVID, the whole Wall Street system was blown out and starting to blow out in September, 2019 with the Mm -hmm. repo bailouts of the Fed putting hundreds of billions of dollars to manage the banks that were blowing out. Going into COVID 2020 March, I mean, there, there's been something like 12 trillion allocated mm-hmm. by the Federal Reserve to help just float these bankrupt banks of the the Wall Street, London, and, and it, it goes beyond just those two cities. But it is an international system of finance oligarchy. And that much money, we could have put, you know, 40 million people back to work here with union wage jobs. Absolutely. And that you know that that would have changed the entire composition if we had any leadership to be able to fight these entrenched interests, but we you know the the entrenched interests are are ruthless as well like Absolutely. they will they will you know they'll bribe you and then smear you and then you know we've seen a lot of assassinations in our history so what is the world land bridge and that's where you have that horizon vision you have the policy demand but there, There's a con- there's a conceptual aspect that can change the mind, but even to the material interests of every individual yes. to be able to travel faster, to actually have a high paying job where one person in the family can be working all day and be able to afford a house and send their kids to college, that alone should be a, a reason why people get on board.
0: I agree. The world land bridge is a conception that LaRouche and his wife Helga zepp advanced in the early 1990s, it began as an idea of what they call the productive triangle, which is a particular effort to industrialize Eastern Europe and after the fall of the Soviet Union. And the idea was that now that the Soviet empire is collapsed, now that the Cold War is ended, we need to have Eurasian integration, Eurasian development across Europe, yes, but then very rapidly this developed into the idea of the New Silk Road and, and then the World Land Bridge. The idea is that we're going to connect the continents, we're going to develop the interior of the continents, we're going to build the water projects, the power projects, the high-speed rail projects, that we need to actually lift up the potential capabilities of the economies of every single nation. You can look at transcontinental rail systems that are required for the African continent. You can look at the same type of thing in in South America, as well as in all across Eurasia. But to to make the point strongly, the idea is not simply a system of high-speed trains, but rather A development corridor, which LaRouche proposed that you would look at perhaps perhaps 150 to 100 kilometers on either side of a main trunk line, like a high-speed train, would have industrial development, agricultural development. We propose these wonderful things. Many people have discussed the idea of a nuplex, basically an agro-industrial complex built around a nuclear power plant. And then you would build out... New cities, new towns, new new local rail and 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 highways and so forth. But in general, you would increase the productive capability of the territory and to do so while building beautiful cities that would give people a a place to live with their children and, and their generations to come and to you know to actually focus on the missions that mankind has as opposed to living in a system of neoliberal you know, exploitation and uh, Dalthusian intentional collapse. So, but you can't do it without that kind of devotion. It's not possible to just sort of pause what we're dealing with here in terms of the breakdown and say, well, let's just sort of make things a little bit better. We're saying that you have to have a systemic change vested in a reorganization of the world financial system to make it possible to build the world land bridge. And, and that this would be a matter of prioritizing certain projects that are absolutely required for different regions of the world, for different nations of the world, making sure that those nations have a long-term low interest rate credit that would actually allow them to, to build this, that they would have support from nations that have the fiscal capabilities that are required. And then, then, then we would continue this until we really build out the whole world.
1: Yeah. And even just focusing on the rail, the aspect of moving from southern South America all the way up through the Dorian Gap, can go all the way through the Alaska to Russia, and you connect the rail lines from Spain into I Cas- not Casablanca, but into Morocco. Yeah. And you connect all of these rail lines and within that that land bridge, you're actually having the industrial corridors and agro-industrial corridors as well. It's it's very optimistic, and it's a way that you can get everyone on board on the the human project. And to to get into how this can be done, right? Yes, so first, yes. first is getting everyone's mind wrapped around it, and getting people's cynicism and pessimism to just be tamped down for for the moment to to have this <laughs> this idea to contemplate. It. And obviously, finance is going to be a big part of it. But as you said, it's not about money finance in a way, as I see it, is how you organize your physical economy. It's, it's almost conceptual of what, what fi- what, how do you need to, to move around the, the economy to, to make things happen? We saw the great bankruptcy in the United States in 1929 through 1933. How was Roosevelt able to organize the financial system to be able to rebuild the, or to build the entire New Deal economy in a bankrupt system, right? So when people are like, well, how do we do it? We don't have the money. How, how did they do it before? Absolutely. And, and you go to, you know, the post the Bretton Woods system. And at that time, the, the World Bank was supposed to help the former colonies of Netherlands and Britain and Spain and, and, and Portugal and elsewhere to, and, and all of the underdeveloped areas to invest and industrialize these areas. And then using that, the IMF was supposed to help with the stability of foreign exchange currency. So they put a peg on the dollar. Mm -hmm. So you couldn't have fluctuation of your currency because if you're doing a 10 year, 20 year, 30 year build, you need your currency to be very stable and at a low interest rate. And if you have it moving up and down, it's gonna collapse every project. So you Mm -hmm. need an international foreign exchange rate that can be stabilized. And of course, with the end of the the nixon bretton woods standard you you now have the currency speculation which you know these bankers can now make 20 30% on some of these foreign exchange swings so they're incentivized to actually the the instability is good for their money making and so we need to get the the industrial capitalists to fight against the finance capitalists or oligarchs because industry needs cheap credit long term and stable. And so that that's one of the the heart of the vampire that needs to be you know put put the stake through the the heart of that that finance vampire that is is taxing us privately through these these crazy swings. So I guess one part would be trying to figure out how to reorganize the financial system. And then obviously you know at the same time concurrently is trying to figure out who has the capability of the machine tool sectors to build the things that we need and then to actually do the 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 construction but i would love to hear your thoughts after well my pontification
0: oh i love it i absolutely love it you're talking my language as you know and i agree with everything that you stated i mean the main thing i would say to people who are listening is read larouche i i mean it's lyndon larouche's 100th birthday coming up on September 9th, and. We've put out, last year we put out the Collected Works Volume 1. I mean, if we do all of his Collected Works, there's going to be like 200 volumes. He wrote an incredible amount in his life. But I think people should really read his crucial books in that in that book. There's like seven books combined in that one large Collected Works. You can find it at larouchelegacyfoundation.com. And in general, I think we got to bring him to the fore. That's, I mean, it because what you're describing in terms of what Franklin Roosevelt did There's only one person who really, and one movement that really fundamentally continued that work. And that's LaRouche in the United States. If you look at any other sort of anti-establishment figure that people might like to point to as a, you know, as someone who who has fought back in an effective way. Many of them have. I don't dispute that at all. They're one, you know, that's, I'm so glad that people have stood up against what is not other than encroaching fascism in our country but you know just total domination of 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 a unelected group of people in the department of justice and if the fbi and so forth who are doing whatever the hell they want but there's one person who actually put forward a clear proposal for how to come out of this and fought like mad his whole life around the world to do it and that's larouche and i really think that given the strategic crisis i mean china cannot trust the United States at all anymore. I think the only way, to, given what Pelosi did, the only way to resolve that kind of problem, which is fundamental, you cannot build the world land bridge, you can't have any future for the United States economy if we don't have a cooperative relationship with China. And I would love to debate anyone who thinks otherwise. But if we're going to do that, I think that it's most likely going to come because of the resurgence of Lyndon LaRouche as a political figure in the United States. And he's dead. So I don't mean that he's going to he's going to stand up and start walking around. I mean that his ideas should be held forward by people who are willing to say these are the ones that make the difference. Diane Sayre, I have to say that her campaign is crucial in this regard. think Think about this: They tripled the signature requirements for independent candidates in New York in the past year. So it went from 15,000, which was already egregious, to 45,000, which is insane. I ran for office in in New Jersey for the same office, U.S. Senate, as an independent. I needed 800 signatures. New York is by far the most outrageous requirements in the country. It's it's ridiculous. And we did it. We got 66,000 signatures for her. She's on the ballot. It's Chuck Schumer, a Republican named Pinion, and Diane Serre, the LaRouche candidate. In the meanwhile, the New York Times ran an article talking about how about how in the governor's race, for the first time in 75 years, there are no independents. And they didn't even mention her. They didn't mention the fact that there is an independent in the Senate race. Of course, they blacked her out. That came after. Chuck Schumer financed, I mean, you know, along with the U.S. Senate, they financed the Ukrainian government, which came out on July 14th with this list of people, including Diane, and called them uh, information terrorists who should be treated as war criminals. And so and the U.S. State Department was present at the press conference where this was released and was supportive of the whole process. So the U.S. government and Chuck Schumer in particular, Scott Ritter has made this point, is trying to silence Diane Sayre, the LaRouche candidate. And I think we should fight back. I think we should get these ideas out. And because it's one thing to say, like, these are good ideas, or this is how things should work, or here's a vision. But it's another thing to have a sort of a cohesive movement. And my experience is that a larger and larger number of people are taking this on, are willing to discuss LaRouche's ideas. They're no longer so afraid of being smeared and slandered for associating themselves with LaRouche because... Everyone is being smeared and slandered and censored and thrown off the internet. So it's like you're kind of at the end of the line. What are they going to do to you now if you associate with LaRouche? If they already call you a Nazi, then you know, there's, the, there's not much more to worry about. But that's my urging to people. LaRouche thought about this his whole life, and he developed a whole very thoughtfully organized, very principled, in-depth view about how to change things, which is substantiated by his repeated successful forecasts. That he made and other people didn't make so that's my response
1: first amendment is there for a reason as well when Mm -hmm. when that is under attack you know that there's not gonna be much defense left if people don't feel free to speak and don't have the space to think and and speak and I, i think another angle for organizing is That people need to think about ideas and Mm -hmm. there's a tremendous amount of policy, history, classical education, scientific education within that. You're people get too attached to the people behind like the, the hat that the idea essentially that you get attached to the idea like a hat and sometimes the idea, you know, if the idea doesn't fit stop you know stop being so attached to the idea just like the hat just move on put on another hat until it, it fits and it's okay to change and to a- adapt and and evolve as well in my own self i'm i'm very much a proponent of the american system of political economy you know which started with so much of hamilton on manufacturers on the credit system moving into hen- henry clay and john quincy adams and henry carey and i learned much of this through the executive intelligence review because i was denied this in my political science education at university of michigan and at the school of public policy at university of maryland and going into what the new deal was completely they don't teach it anymore and to have these ideas continued to be promoted even if you don't like larouche or who he is I think hmm. these ideas or who he was or whatever you think he was, these ideas remain important to debate and to not just dismiss, but to engage. And if you don't like them, then, then debate people about them. Don't try to censor people about them. That, that is absolutely the wrong way. Censorship almost never works. It's much better to debate people that you disagree with and let the, the best ideas rise to the top. And, and we, as a universal collective species need to work together or else, you know, the, the, the other side of that is extinction. And I refuse to submit to that.
0: Amen. Amen. I, uh, I agree with you. You know, Frederick Douglass said that the main reason that slave conti- slavery continued, one of the key reasons that slavery continued was that was the censorship in the South, that people were not allowed to read the arguments about how evil it was. And that if they had been able to understand and read and converse about it, then it would have been ended much more quickly. And you know that's what's gone on is that Lyndon LaRouche was put in, put in prison, and uh, the move as an effort to try to destroy his organization and his movement. And he, we didn't, we didn't quit, you know. And there are people who have decided, you know, to, who who think that that oh well, LaRouche is for cranks or something like that they don't know what the heck they're talking about. We put out a statement just recently after a most recent conference calling for an ad hoc committee for a new Bretton Woods to reorganize the international financial system entirely along the lines that we've been discussing here and to make it possible to build the world land bridge and expand the belt and road initiative which of course is the context. And you know, we have like the former head of the Bolivian armed armed forces. We have the the prime minister and the foreign minister of the Yemeni government, the Houthi government, on 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 that petition. We have a wide number of of former intelligence officials in the United States who are patriotic, who are supporting that effort, and many others. So I think that the LaRouche movement today has under Helgadzep LaRouche, we have the reach. We have the international reach. And I don't see anyone else who has that and also has a solution. So that's why I continue to passionately involve myself in this organization is because I think that it's the I think it's got the best capability of of pulling people out. And it's not about trying to get people all to say that everything that we've ever said is right. First of all, because it wasn't all right. <laughs> yeah, Although you, most you have
1: of, to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but but who's got the best batting
0: average? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> or like what principles are right? Because yeah, I it, think it's that all the princ- about the principle and the concept. Yeah. yeah. And then. But even further, look at our conferences. We bring people together who disagree completely because we're trying to consider that there's a method of uh, approaching the issue of one mankind, of the one mankind. You're not going to solve the problems of today by trying to put out this fire and that fire. I mean, the whole thing between the fact that Biden and Pelosi would be like, well, let's provoke Russia and China at the same time is a good proof of that. It's just ridiculous. You can't do one thing or another. You need a systemic change. And- Fundamentally, that's going to be saying that there is a one mankind and all nations have to act according to what's best for the one mankind.
1: So I have a few more questions and I I do I do want to go into a little bit of the the counter questions about alliances with China and Russia and the idea on one sense that there is a bifurcation going on (laughs) it Mm -hmm. is easy to say is easy to see and some of these first COVID happened and there's a lot of questions around that and there's a lot of questions of what was coming out of China at that time when people were falling on the streets from this COVID that I've never seen in my around the United States of people just like collapsing in the streets there are a lot of videos coming out. And the lockdowns, a lot of questions around that. China's continuing to do that. And the idea of just being able to have a zero Covid policy from some doctors just say it's it's absolutely impossible. And then on top of that, you have the question of what the hell was going on with this Wuhan lab, with Wellcome Trust, with the U.S. Funding. Yeah, there, there's just a lot of questions on all of these aspects and even the masking today there it's it's just coming out that you compare city to city mask unmasked and it really hasn't had much of a, a change and i I don't want to focus on COVID as much as just the question of trust and mm-hmm. and and where like where is the power centers going on because there there's some there's some people you know using these theories of that there are conspiracies that there's an intentional bifurcation of the anglo-american alliance to shell off their control and then there's going to be different areas of control. And one is going to be very dark and Malthusian and the other ones, you know, and and China does have a a very strict social credit system that Mm -hmm. makes that in some ways, if the whole idea is to allow the the human consciousness to Mm -hmm. achieve the highest potentialities in a system of censorship that can also undermine it as well. Meanwhile, though, the productive powers of labor in China are greater than we've mm-hmm. ever seen in the world with every all their infrastructure. So I mean there's there's a lot of lot of questions there, obviously, Some and a lot up. of there's a lot of unproven statements as well, as I just went out. But you know, there's a lot of a lot of things on the internet these days. <laughs> so yeah. Um how how do you respond though to, mm-hmm. to China's portrayal as being a very small group of a Standing Politburo of seven seven men whose families are all from the first generation are very connected to the the princeling the the original founders of Mm -hmm. China and that their goal is as imperial as as any other Mm -hmm. imperial system and so how how would you respond Uh, to that Thank you
0: so much for posing that question I think it's crucial I totally uh, agree First of all let me say that I am obviously I'm an overt big supporter of China and the Chinese government in so much of what they do, okay, but let me also say that my argument is never going to be that something is true or something is good because China supports it, because I came to my conclusions based on my own investigation of the necessary principles for the organization of society and of humankind, and so I'm not, I don't accept any arguments by authority. We, you'd have, people will have to have, I'll have to have it demonstrated I'll have to make that discovery for myself to be able to say whether or not I think it is true, and that's how people should approach things. So first of all, look into your, you know, look into your heart of hearts and ask whether these things that you, a person who may be listening, and ask whether you know these assertions about China are things that you have accepted on the basis of authority, because we've demonstrated many times over that most of the, the crucial arguments, like for example, the claim about the Belt and Road Initiative being debt trap diplomacy is tripe. it's not at all supportable it's false sri lanka is being shut down because of they're in chaos they're in total total disaster and it's because of huge huge majority of their debt is to the western financial system to to private western banks and and and, and associated groups and and then they got brought into this green policy of organic farming and so forth which has been an, eliminating all fertilizer artificial fertilizer and so forth or a large majority of it
1: and they lost their export their commodity their agricultural commodity export that then created a financial kind of run on their their currency exactly
0: exactly and so now they don't have any ability to deal with it and uh, and once again you know the the world crisis need be considered that you have like 12 nations that are about to default on all their debt. Okay. So what is causing that? That's the, that's the historical process people should be aware of and thinking through as they try to investigate this question for themselves. In fact, I'm trying to propose a debate because, you know, there's a large faction of people like Whitney Webb and, uh, and this guy, Nico House that I was talking to. And then of course, you know, the sort of Overt intelligence operatives like Jack Posobiec, who is an Navy intelligence officer, who who say that they're against the Great Reset, but that China's part of the Great Reset. All types of people left and right say this. They, many of them have an association with Bitcoin, not all of them. Many of them have an association with Peter Thiel or with Steve Bannon. So and of course the Henry Jackson Society out of out of London and Henry and Tony Blair also advanced the idea in in cooperation with these networks some of them, that there is a necessity of decoupling from China and so forth. And, that, and these are the places where you get a lot of this claim that China is part of the Great Reset. So just dig in, dig into the fundamental issue. There's a genocide hop happening across the world. If you don't acknowledge that, you're not in reality. There's a great cat- catastrophic loss of life from this failure of this economic system called neoliberalism or whatever you want to call it. And the Chinese are doing something fundamentally different. So they have a view that economic development is good, you know, that it's necessary for the people. And whether it's seven guys in the Politburo or, or I'm sorry, whatever, seven in the Standing Committee, yeah. or 90 million people who are part of the Chinese, who are members of the Chinese communist, the Communist Party of China or if it's, you know, 1.4 billion people who are who are in China, do that in general, China is moving on that basis. And people who would like to, you know, lump China in with the Great Reset, they have an a historical understanding. I mean, look at India first, then go back to China, the Indian response to the CO2 reduction policy. Has been to say, and also to the sanctions policy on Russia, has been basically to say, we are, India is a civilization that reaches back thousands of years. You don't get to tell us to take a side. You don't get to force us to take a side. You know, maybe that, maybe you know, the United States, Winston Churchill, the Dulles brothers could do that at the start of the Cold War, right, and commit uh, vicious atrocities, forcing trying to force nations to take sides against, against, you know, against the communist menace, but you can no longer do that. And the reason they're giving is we are a civilization. We have a deep rooted, you know, place in world history, and we are going to continue to to take measures according to what we think, and not just be forced from what you think. Now look at China. China is a 5,000 year old civilization. They have, they, there is rooted in their approach to the world, Confucianism, Confucianist ideas, other ideas as well, but I'll focus on Confucianism because I think it is the most beautiful element, most noble element that I'm familiar with of the core ideas of China. And Confucianism is based on the idea of harmony among nations for the benefit of all people. That is a key concept within The Confucianist outlook and that the core thing you need to do to lead a lead humanity, lead a nation is to develop the virtue of the population to improve the virtuous capability of the people. So look at it from that standpoint and take into account the revival of Confucianism under Xi Jinping. And then you can get out of this stupid box that people have been put in where they say, well, I don't think that China is altruistic. Because they're projecting, because people have presumed, because we've been living in 50 years of collapse in the West, that it's impossible for Western countries to for any government to, to act on the basis of the of the common aims of mankind. And to say that this is something we do out of agape, out of love of humanity, because that's who we want to be as a civilization. That's who we want to be as a nation, as a, you know, that's what we want. But in fact, that is exactly what we want. I am arguing for the United States to act to ensure the economic development of Africa and every underdeveloped region of the world because it is good for humanity and because it's a good way to honor God. <laughs> you know, it's a good way to, to 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 act in the image of the creator. And if we don't do it, then we're not really humans and we're just sort of, you know, apes walking around pretending that we're humans. So that's a, that's my way of approaching that. People may not appreciate that I haven't given any like concrete refutations of what China is uh, of, of the accusations against China. I I'm not going to do that. I want you to actually consider what China is and what the future demands of us. And, and I think if you look particularly into the, the commitments that they have made around the development of Africa, then you will understand much more clearly what they are doing.
1: Well, i definitely want that high-speed rail they gave kenya we can't <laughs> right? even build it in california right <laughs> 120 120 billion dollars and it's still not done 10 10 15 years later it's we need to build again here in america and at the very least let's have a peace race and let china be the motivator and at the same time though we're gonna need china russia and india and the united states all firing on full cylinders. To to reindustrialize the world and Look, Or to, to industrialize the world
0: Agreed yeah. Just a couple of quick points To give a little bit more Substance to what I'm saying Imagine Haiti Haiti is right there It's right there People don't think about it It is right yeah. there Right next to us And the conditions in Haiti There's 25% inflation in July 25% inflation in Haiti The conditions have been Beyond abysmal You're talking about medieval conditions people a lot a lot of people in haiti have to burn wood there's no fuel for them other than firewood they're denuding the landscape out of necessity out of total necessity and of course people should if they haven't they should figure out they should look up the mud pies they should yeah, look up the fact back... yeah people yeah. people starving to death right there, in there exactly just
1: in our in our our
0: sphere of influence And we could easily cooperate with China on the economic development of Haiti. We could do it. If the IMF were out of the way and the Chinese had a major effort to industrialize, to develop and modernize Port-au-Prince, and it was blocked by the IMF. Look at Afghanistan. I'll give one more example. Afghanistan, which Joe Biden's policy has forced 22 million people into into conditions that are in a direction of starvation, into massive food insecurity, that the freezing of $9 billion of the, of the central bank of Afghanistan. Helga LaRouche is saying that Afghanistan is sufficiently distant from, and sufficiently, you know, apparently not crucial, crucial strategically, that there's no excuse to, for, for the U.S. To, to stand in the way of a cooperative effort with Pakistan, with Russia, with China, with the United States, to extend the ch- central, the China-Pakistan economic corridor into Afghanistan and to fully develop Afghanistan with special focus on providing an a advanced medical system and infrastructure for that nation that has been so viciously destroyed by the actions of empire. So,
1: yeah, but Daniel, I mean, the grand chessboard says if we could just destabilize Pakistan, Afghanistan into the heart of Russia, then China can't get there, you know, their development and their pipelines into the Middle East, and then they have to export all the oil around through the Strait of Malacca, and you know make it much harder for them to have control. But yeah. one one other anecdote that that I, obviously I don't agree yes. with, but that one other anecdote: I was in Haiti, and it was after the earthquake, and I took the road from Port-au-Prince through Saint Mark all the way up to Cap Haitian in the north. And this is is less than a hundred miles of a road, but it took about six seven hours. And it's, it's on a windy kind of hills. A lot of it's very rugged terrain, but beautiful, beautiful country. But there are parts of the road that were just washed out and it looked like bombs had hit and missiles had hit. And I get up to the the Capation and I'm, I'm at the hotel bar and just having a drink at the end of the, the day. And there's a guy at the bar and he works for the Inter-American Bank. And we start talking about this road, how crazy it is. And and I asked him, like, how much, how much would it cost to just repair, like, a kilometer of the road? And he, and he said, well, for about $10 million, we could do it. And so 100 hundred kilometers, a billion dollars. And we put so much money into Haiti. Right. It, this road, which is so important, connecting Port-au-Prince to Cap-Haitien. Cap you know it's still not done so we're doing all this development it's not working the 90s we did the neoliberal thing in haiti it was a rice exporter and now you know it's food insecure for the last 25 years goes on and on but daniel we're reaching the end of our time and yeah. where can people follow you and i i really do want to encourage these debates because it, if it, yes. it's one thing it's one thing to say well this guy's crazy or these ideas are crazy or they can never work but it's another thing to, what, what is your proposal? Let's, let's, let's compare Amen. proposals. Let's have a discussion and let's, let's compare visions. And then we can start merging it because I, I think having that, these discussions and these debates will, I think, help move us forward. But where can people follow you?
0: Well, a lot of my social act, uh, media activity is on Twitter. I'm at, at Burke, B-U-R-K-E, the digit four. Senate. I didn't know that you can't change your <laughs> your your handle after you get a blue check. Otherwise, you lose the blue check. But on the other hand, I intend to run for U.S. Senate again. So I'm going to hold on to that. And uh, so Burke for Senate. And then I do a show on Monday nights on the LaRouche Organization YouTube, which we're calling the World Land Bridge Show. And I'm really focused on getting young people involved and p- presenting LaRouche's ideas. So that's one of the things that we're doing. We're talking to people about the American system and generally giving people an update on what we're doing. And otherwise, I really want to encourage people to follow Diane Sayre for U.S. Senate. She's just at Diane Sayre, S-A-R-E, and also to to watch the Schiller Institute website and become a member there.
1: Daniel Burke, thank you so much for your time.
0: Thank you. I had a wonderful time. Really good to meet you, Evan.